0: Please uh, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel. We are in Mark chapter 8, and uh, we will be there for the next two weeks before taking a break. As we uh, turn to God's Word, let's once again turn to Him in prayer. Almighty God, as we come before Your Word this morning, we ask that You would make Yourself known to us. Open our ears, open our eyes. Open our minds and open our hearts that we may hear, see, and know you through your word and love you. Help us to not just agree with what is before us, but enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit to respond from the heart in repentance and faith. O Lord, we ask that this very hour you would make known to us the path of life, for in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures Forevermore. Amen. We have arrived at week thirty. Week thirty, we're almost we're about halfway, so I guess there's going to be a week sixty, probably at some point. But I want to begin our message, Jesus, according to the Bible and exposition of the Gospel of Mark, our series, with this message on the rebuke of Jesus by asking a few questions. Question number one. When was the last time you told God in so many words that He does not know what He is talking about or doing? Or something along the lines that you told God that He, you have a better plan for your life than He has? Now, you may be thinking, I have never done that. Well, consider this. Have you ever refused to trust God in the midst of Suffering in the midst of difficult circumstances? Have you ever rejected the call, an inward call, to help a neighbor because you knew that it would cost you, if anything, it would cost you time? Have you ever required someone who has sinned against you and asked for forgiveness to meet your unusually high standard for sincerity? before you would forgive them? Have there been times when you have in effect taken Jesus aside and told Him that His commands are just too difficult, His call is too demanding, and His way is just too narrow? Well, if you've answered yes to any of these questions, and we all have, then you have in a very real sense rebuked Jesus. And you're not alone. As we will see in today's passage, even one of Jesus' first disciples rebuked Jesus. Here we are in chapter 8, and I think it's not an over-exaggeration to say that chapter 8 is the pivotal chapter in Mark's Gospel, because it's the climax of part 1, And it's the transition, the turning point to part two. Here at the end of chapter eight, we with Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, we begin to see the true identity of Jesus. Remember again, last week, the questions who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, Peter representing all the disciples, responded. It's the climax. It's part one, who is Jesus? Part two is what did Jesus come to do? The focus here we've seen is Jesus revealing Himself as the King He is, in the words of Peter, the Christ. But here, beginning in verse 31 of chapter 8, it's the start of the second half, it's a change of direction. It's the journey now to Jerusalem that will end with Jesus at the cross, and then we'll end at the resurrection. Now, our text this morning is short. For those of you uh, who've been with us sometimes when we've had a long passage, this is very, very short. And yet, it is significant because these three verses serve as the introduction to the second half of Mark's gospel. And in unpacking this introduction, we're going to consider three things the teaching of Jesus a tale of two rebukes, and two questions for those who hear. Hear now the reading of God's Word, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's consider first the teaching of Jesus, verses 31 and the first half Of verse 32. This is the first of three passion that is death and resurrection predictions in Mark. We also will see that in chapter 9 verse 31 and in chapter 10 verses 33 and 34. Notice we read Jesus began to teach. It's it's a new subject in Jesus's teaching ministry. He's going to teach us what he came to do and in fact that's the second catechism question is it not of mark's shortest catechism who is jesus what did he come to do and how should someone respond to the person and work of jesus and notice that jesus refers to himself as the son of man if you look through the uh gospels it's the jesus's favorite self- designation, the Son of Man, and most likely it's coming from Daniel chapter 7 where we see a glorious, victorious figure, the Son of Man. Notice what he says then, the Son of Man must, must, not simply will happen as in a mere prediction, but rather that which must happen happen. And indeed this word must modifies and controls the whole sentence. Everything is necessary. Look with me at what must take place. First, Jesus must suffer many things. The son of man must suffer many things. It's it's an echo in a short statement of what we heard in Isaiah 52 and 53 of the suffering servant. And that that son of man who suffers must also be rejected. And notice, it's not rejected by the common man. Rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, what's known as the Sanhedrin, the religious leadership of Israel. It's the court that governed Jewish affairs. Notice Jesus' rejection by the religious leadership. The Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must be rejected. And if that's not hard enough, the Son of Man must be killed. Not a natural death, not old age, not unexpected cancer, not an accident on the the road, must be be killed, it implies a rather violent death. But it doesn't just end there because also the Son of Man must, after three days, rise again. With the mention of death, here comes the mention of new life. Well, several implications flow from the use of this word must. Must in the sense of the prophecy of Scripture. There's a weight and a decree and Jesus knows His Scriptures. Jesus knows the Word of God. He must. Must in the sense that the tension is somehow going to be resolved. Because the central question of the Old Testament is this. How can God be forgiving and yet not clear the guilty as we read in Exodus 34? How can God not clear the guilty... But be forgiving. The tension builds in the Old Testament. How can God be gracious and yet just? And at the end of the Old Testament, at the end of Malachi, there is no resolution to that tension. Must. Must in the sense that Jesus had to die in order to bring about salvation. Step back with me and, and think about this. Jesus saying, The Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, and must rise again. In a way, it proves the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. Because if we somehow could save ourselves, if you and I could somehow make ourselves right with God, by our good works, by a good life, by contributions to this or that, if we could do that, then there would be absolutely no reason... For Jesus to die and suffer horribly. Now, do you sense Jesus' certainty and absolute confidence as to what is going on here? What is going to happen? Ask yourself, based on this, who is in control? Who is in control? Is the Jewish religious leadership in control? Is the Roman government occupying Palestine in control? Are the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes going to dictate what's going to happen? Absolutely no. Jesus is in control. My friends, the world right now in many ways does feel like it's spinning out of control politically. For some of you, maybe financially. Some of you, relationally. But just think about Jesus saying what is not just going to happen, but must happen. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is in control. Rest, my friends, in the sovereignty of God. And it's not a bare, cold sovereignty, it is a warm and loving sovereignty, as Stan rightly drew our attention to, the love of God. It's a sovereign love. Now, unlike some of his previous teaching, Jesus' teaching here was not mysterious like the parables, but rather open. What do we read? And he said this plainly. Plainly. In other words, Jesus' teaching here is not hard to understand, but oh my, it will be hard to accept. So much so that his teaching will be opposed. And now we get to a tale of two rebukes from the second half of verse 32 into verse 33. First, let's take a look at Peter's rebuke of Jesus. Peter took Jesus aside, we read. We read in verse 32, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Notice Just as Jesus had taken men aside to heal them, men who could not hear or see, Jesus compassionately takes them aside and works a great miracle. Here, Peter takes Jesus aside. And though he's convinced that Jesus is the Christ, he is appalled at the thought. It's not only inconceivable that the Christ must suffer, be rejected, be killed. It is wrong. Imagine with me a college classroom, one of those lecture halls that are um, kind of at a slope, and at the toward the end of a three-hour class, the professor has been teaching physics or chemistry or history or English. Imagine with me that a student gets up from his desk and he walks down the aisle, and while the class is going on, He comes up to the uh, professor and says let me tell you. Let me instruct you. Let me really tell you what's going on. Can you imagine that scene? Because it's not that the student is going to kind of instruct the instructor or instruct the professor. The student is going to rebuke the professor and that's what is happening here. It's the same word Jesus uses in Mark 3.12 where he rebukes and silences the demons. Now, I don't use the word rebuke too often. Do you? Do you all use rebuke? I, I, I don't. But in all of the translations I was consulting, it's all rebuke. But I had to ask myself, what does rebuke mean? And I found some synonyms. Reprimand, reprove, censure, reproach, scold, admonish, criticize. And I like this. Haul over the coals. Give a talking to. Take to task. Well, thankfully, at the end of that list, there was an antonym. Praise. Peter was not praising Jesus. He's rebuking Jesus. But notice... The inseparable connection between Jesus and his teaching. Jesus is teaching, but Peter rebukes Jesus. Because Jesus and his teaching are inseparable. Now what did this rebuke mean to Peter? Peter had good intentions. For those of you reading Table Talk last month on June 27th, you may have read this statement. Good intentions Do not excuse falsehood. Peter is loyal to Jesus. He wants to protect Jesus or rather protect himself. Here is Peter rebuking the one he has just confessed as the Christ. A number of years ago when I was in seminary, we had a guest preacher from the United Kingdom, David Jackman was his name, and he came over to speak at a preaching conference, and I remember he said this, there are two words said together that a Christian should never say. And he said, you know, we we hear of oxymorons like, you know, jumbo shrimp or minor crisis, you know, two words that don't fit together, but he said, for the Christian, these are two words that should never be uttered when the Lord asks us to do something. And what are those two words? No, Lord. No, Lord. That's Peter. Now before we consider Jesus' response to Peter's rebuke, we need to realize that what is taking place here when Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus is facing another great temptation. Because what did this rebuke mean to Jesus? This was, as it were, a repeat of the devil's temptation in the wilderness. Between verses 32 and 33 is a great temptation. Jesus is being tempted. The devil offered Jesus the kingdom of the world without suffering. The time that the enemy of God had been waiting for had arrived, because we read in Luke this, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The opportune time had arrived. To be sure, it arrives again in the Garden of Gethsemane. But here, at the time of Peter's rebuke, there's another crossroads. Suffering or no suffering. For Peter, the answer, of course, is no suffering. Jesus knew that Peter was asking Him to avoid suffering, rejection, and death. Peter, in a word, was asking Jesus to avoid the cross. To don't go the way of Calvary. Don't go the way of the cross. But in response, in response, Jesus rebukes Peter. He turns to all his disciples and he rebukes Peter by saying this, get behind me, Satan. Shocking. Does this rebuke seem out of place? Is it disproportionate? Is it a cruel and unusual rebuke? Was Jesus out of line? Now, when I first read this as a I don't know how old I was, I really probably stopped and said, you know what, that seems a little over the top, a little bit unwarranted. But I was helped to see something. Uh, Back in the days, I was in the Navy, I was the gunnery officer, and we were off the coast of a uh, small island off of Puerto Rico, and we were doing an exercise involving what's called naval gunfire support. And it was, ask me about it later, it was a lot of fun. Um, And we had this one particular exercise called counter-battery fire. And what would happen is if we, if our spotters on the ground saw that we were going to be shot at, we turned around and um, shifted our target from where we were initially, you know, shelling to that, to eliminate the threat. And if that enemy sent us one round, we did not just send one round back. We sent an overwhelming amount of fire because we had to eliminate the threat that's what Jesus is doing here it's an overwhelming response why because the creature creature is rebuking the creator notice what Jesus continues to say for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man the things of God. In this context, I mean, what are the things of God? You could say the whole scripture that deal with the things of God. But in our context, it's the necessity of Jesus' suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. And note, Jesus is not saying the things of God versus the things of Satan, but rather the things of God versus the things of man. Because here, man and Satan are a team. The things of man. And in this context, what is that? It's the desire for Jesus to avoid the cross. Notice, setting your mind. Setting your mind. The importance of your mind, your beliefs, your thoughts. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Paul writes the Roman church. Before there is action, there is always belief. Because belief is the foundation of actions as we've been looking at the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What we are to believe and what we are to do and the belief comes first. Let's ask yourself this question. Am I shocked that Jesus, the Savior, the one who's so weak and helpless, the compassionate one, does it shock you that Jesus turns around and identifies Peter with Satan? Well, if you're not shocked, you need to be shocked. It should shock you. It is supposed to shock you. Here we have the summary teaching of Jesus, what He came to do as well as the rebuke of Jesus, both Peter's rebuke of Jesus and Jesus' rebuke of Peter. And I believe our text asks two questions which we as followers of Jesus must answer. These two questions are first, how and why do we, like Peter, rebuke Jesus? And second, why and how does Jesus rebuke us as he did Peter? You'll notice I entitled this point, Two Questions for Those Who Hear. Two Questions for Those Who Hear. Uh, you might remember from the parable of the sower, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Turn back with me to chapter 8, verse 18. What does Jesus say to his own disciples? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? These two questions are for people who hear. First question, how and why do we, like Peter, rebuke Jesus? First of all, it's important, Peter represents us. Peter represents anyone who has a set agenda for God. And who then demands from God that he fulfills our expectations. We think we know better than God what he needs to do. We're more like Peter than I think we realize here. Peter also represents anyone who cannot incorporate the idea of suffering and self-denial into their ideas of what happiness and greatness mean. You know before the 20th century, suffering was a way of life. To get your dinner on the table involved suffering. To, to um, have a, a child involved great suffering in view of medical care available. It, life was understood to be one of suffering, but along comes the 20th century and now the 20th century, 21st century. The pursuit of happiness, greatness, suffering is to be avoided at all costs. And Peter represents anyone who doesn't really believe that Jesus must die for them. Because the the doctrine of the necessity of Jesus' death is very insulting. Hear me in this. It's very insulting. It means that you and I are so sinful that nothing but the death of the Son of God could save you. He had to die for you. There's no other way. None. It cannot be found. So in summary, Peter shows that he has an agenda and expectations to which God must conform. Here is Peter giving Paul some fuel for Romans 1. We all want to make God in our own image. A manageable God. This is idolatry. Peter wants a Jesus that he wants. He doesn't yet want the Jesus he needs. So let's consider how... You and I, how do we rebuke Jesus? First, we rebuke Jesus by setting our minds on the things of men rather than the things of God. We, like Peter, seek to avoid the cross. Second, we rebuke Jesus by refusing His grace. Now those seem a little bit opposite, don't they? But listen and think about this. When you stop and think about it, we, in many ways, don't want a gospel of grace, but rather a gospel of performance and effort. We want to do it on our own. We want to earn it. We are performance-oriented and performance-driven. We want to earn our own way. And yet, the gospel of grace is charity and only those who know they're broke and poor and have no other way out of the hole that they're in. Only they hear. Only they receive. Now let's consider why we rebuke Jesus. That was the how we rebuke Jesus, but why? What is our motive? Well, in one sense, we rebuke Jesus because we are by nature sinners opposed to God And the things of God. And even those who are new creations in Christ. Still have remnants of that opposition to God. That continues to to rear its ugly head here and there. Peter rebukes Jesus. Because he was looking for a political emancipation. And an external kingdom. We too. Witness American politics. We're looking for one Man or for one woman to somehow fix our lives. Are you kidding? Peter was looking for the Messiah that all the Jews were looking for. Throw off the Roman rule. Free us. He was looking for that kind of Messiah. And yet Jesus came to bring about a spiritual emancipation. A freeing from the bondage of sin. The cross reveals our sin and we do not want to be reminded... Of our sin. But here's the second question: Why and how does Jesus rebuke us as he does Peter? Let's first consider Jesus' motive, the why question. Jesus rebukes us because he loves us. Because he loves us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Those of you that have got your Bibles, Hebrews. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him or rebuked by Him. For the Lord disciplines the ones He loves. He chastises every son whom He receives." The Lord rebukes us because He loves us. We read in Revelation chapter 3, when Jesus speaks to the church of Laodicea, He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, So be zealous and repent. Why does Jesus rebuke us? because he loves us. In fact, I had a friend who once said, "You're not if you're not rebuking me, you're not loving me." Do we have any of those kind of relationships here? Are we con- so concerned about pursuing holiness that you would welcome a brother or sister in Christ pointing out in your life where you're not there yet? I pray that we have those kind of friendships. Those kind of relationships that are helping us press on toward the goal, the upward call of Christ Jesus. May our church be full of people who love one another, who lovingly rebuke one another. It saves our lives. It saves us misery. So how does Jesus rebuke us? Here specifically, he rebukes us by confronting us with the necessity of one thing. The cross. And though, not my, and though not mentioned by name, the cross is at the center of these two rebukes. Peter says in effect of the cross, get it out of here. It must go. Jesus says, no, it must stay. The cross preached by Jesus. The cross preached by Paul. Because Paul writes that the message or the preaching of the cross is folly. Or foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God at the heart of the Christian faith is Jesus Christ crucified and risen but we preach Christ Paul writes to the church in Corinth a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so that statement there, Christ being either a stumbling block or the cross being either a stumbling block or the power of God and the wisdom of God, that forces us to ask a question. Who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus And the cross to me? Is he, is it a stumbling block? Or is it the wisdom and power of God? It's really one of those two answers. So, what is an appropriate response to this passage? Let's wrap up. What how should we respond to these three short verses? I think our response needs to be to recognize that our minds are set in either one of two directions, toward the things of God, and in this case, the cross, or the things of man, and in this case, not the cross. Verse 33 in the King James Version says this, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. Now, I did not use the word savorist in the last year. Think about it. Savorist. What are you hungry for? What are you thirsting after? Is it the things of God? Or rather, is your appetite satisfied by the things of man right now? What are you hungering for? What are you living for? And to recognize that every time you and I run from and reject the cross, we are rebuking Jesus. I encourage you to read the two something-to-think-about quotes later today about the centrality of the cross and how it really separates the world into two kinds of people. The cross of Jesus Christ. Well, let's focus one more time on the rebuke of Jesus. Ours of Him and His of us. Jack Miller, a former Presbyterian pastor, professor at Westminster Seminary, founder of World Harvest Mission, father of Paul Miller who wrote A Praying Life said this, the Bible can be summed up in two sentences. Cheer up. You are worse than you think. Cheer up. You are more loved than you realize. Now these two statements reflect the reality of what's going on in these two rebukes. Ours of Jesus, the sinful rebuke, and His of us, the beautiful rebuke. This statement reminds us that we are both sinful and loved. Because those whom He loves, He rebukes. Praise God that He rebukes us. It's evidence of his love for us. His rebuke humbles us and drives us where? To the cross. And what do we find at the cross? Conviction of sin, to be sure, but also the mercy and grace of God. His rebuke of us drives us to the cross where we find the mercy and the grace of God. My friends, never forget this that God's rebuke is merciful and gracious. And there's one more rebuke that we need to mention. It's the final rebuke of Jesus. Because Jesus rebuked our great and final enemy. And who is our great and final enemy? Death. By His atoning death on the cross and through His triumphant resurrection from the grave. The writer to the Hebrew says this, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Paul writes, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? My friends, When was the last time you rebuked Jesus? And when was the last time Jesus rebuked you? Let's pray. Almighty God, we confess in thought, word, and deed that we have rebuked Jesus. Whether planned or spontaneous, whether conscious of the fact or unaware of what we were doing we far too often get in the face of the one who has come to save us and we tell him he doesn't care, he doesn't know what he's doing. Oh Father, have mercy on us. We praise you for Jesus, who when rebuked by one of his own, did not turn away from the cross. For in dying upon the cross and then rising from the grave, he rebuked death, the ultimate and final enemy for all those who believe. Father keep our hearts soft before you and make us quick to receive and to heed your rebuke for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. My response today is actually inserting your bowl.